Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. Good morning. This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. In 1995, the University of California system made national news for this. From California tonight, a picture of how the nation's largest university system may be transformed now that its affirmative action program is going to be ended. 25 years ago, University of California regents voted to end race-based admissions practices in the UC system. A year later, in 1996, California voters approved Proposition 209, which amended the state constitution to ban preferential treatment in education and government bodies. Now UC regents have voted to endorse reversing their past position and repealing Prop 209. That would once again allow the UC system to use affirmative action in admissions and hiring. Supporters say race-neutral admissions have reduced the number of people of color attending the UC system, and subsequent efforts to boost diversity haven't met expectations. In comments on the floor of the state legislature last week, Assemblymember Lorena Gonzalez talked about how she saw diversity disappear here when she attended UCLA Law School because of Prop 209. And we saw a class go from being incredibly diverse, completely qualified, really robust in our discussions to one that lacked almost a single black or Latino student. The state assembly has approved a measure to reverse Proposition 209. If the state Senate does the same thing, it will go before California voters as a ballot initiative in November. Let's stay with the state legislature. It passed a budget yesterday, but that doesn't mean the spending discussion is over, especially in a year when California is grappling with a pandemic and the economic toll it's taken on state finances. KQED politics reporter Katie Orr has details. State lawmakers have met their constitutionally required responsibility of passing a balanced budget by June 15th. But Senate leader Tony Atkins acknowledged the legislature is still negotiating with Governor Gavin Newsom over exactly how to close a projected $54 billion deficit brought on by the COVID-19 pandemic. We continue to meet with the governor and his staff and negotiations are ongoing. While there will be changes to reflect the final agreement, We will not deviate from the principles that we have outlined in this budget. Newsom's proposal includes $14 billion in so-called trigger cuts that would take effect next month unless the state gets more money from the federal government. The legislature would give national lawmakers more time, delaying trigger cuts until October. It also rejects Newsom's proposed cuts to education and health programs. Atkins says she hopes to have a final agreement with the governor by July 1st, the start of the new fiscal year. For the California Report, I'm Katie Orr in Sacramento. As California continues to reopen during the pandemic, the number of COVID-19 cases in the state is steadily increasing. But Governor Newsom says the state is well prepared for a possible future spike. KQED politics reporter Guy Marzarotti has more. 
The number of people testing positive for the coronavirus is rising in California as more tests are conducted and counties lift stay-at-home restrictions. But Newsom says the situation is manageable because the state's hospitals are far from overwhelmed. As we mix, as we reopen, inevitably we're going to see an increase in the total number of cases. It's our capacity to address that that is so foundational. The administration's top concern continues to be skilled nursing homes, where more than half of the state's COVID-19 deaths have occurred. The state is requiring but not providing tests for all nursing home patients and staff. For the California Report, I'm Guy Marzarati. In the wake of police abuse cases like the murder of George Floyd and the resulting protests, cities and counties across California are facing mounting public pressure to rethink police practices and funding. In Los Angeles, a push to defund the LAPD got its first official hearing at L.A. City Hall yesterday. KCRW's Benjamin Gottlieb has more. They have used silent protests raucous rallies, and now a PowerPoint presentation. And now we're going to start diving into the findings. A coalition of civil rights advocates led by Black Lives Matter Los Angeles delivered a budget proposal of their own during a special session convened by the L.A. City Council. We wanted to invest in universal needs and divest in traditional forms of policing. It's called the People's Budgets L.A., and its principal aim is to defund the LAPD. We know that we spend way too much money on law enforcement. David Turner is one of those who had a seat at the table during a sometimes emotional meeting between movement organizers and city leaders. A meeting that would have been unthinkable just a few weeks ago, before weeks of sustained protests in the streets against police brutality. Their people's budget calls for a redirecting of LAPD dollars to either create or improve education, healthcare, and housing programs, among some others, for disadvantaged communities. The world is speaking right now. Melina Abdullah is the co-founder of Black Lives Matter LA. They're saying we don't want a system of policing that puts targets on the backs of black people especially, but also is a regular assailant and traumatizer of our entire community. City leaders praised the activists and offered up statements of support, but they fell short of committing to any demands. The city council is exploring ways to redirect upwards of $150 million from the LAPD towards health and education in the black community and other communities of color in L.A. The current budget allocation for the LAPD this upcoming fiscal year is just under $2 billion. Civil rights activists say these concessions from city leaders do not go far enough. For the California Reports, I'm Benjamin Gottlieb in Los Angeles. Americans are engaging in a debate about how to reform police departments so officers don't engage in discriminatory practices and don't kill people like George Floyd. Some analysts say one problem isn't just a few rotten apples in departments. It's that when officers get fired for misconduct, they easily get hired elsewhere. California's attorney general wants to pass new laws that ensure that bad cops don't get to stay on the job anywhere. KQED politics correspondent Marisa Lagos has more. Attorney General Javier Becerra says he'll support legislation to create some sort of certification system for California police officers so that officers who commit serious misconduct can be decertified instead of simply being hired by another agency. It's one of a litany of recommendations Becerra is making in the wake of ongoing protests against police brutality and racism. He says some changes could be made immediately. What I'm asking today is that 
all of our sister agencies who do law enforcement in the state of California look closely at these proposals. Let's see if we can show the people of California that we can start doing this work without having to be required to do it. Those policies include requiring other police officers to intervene if they see someone is using excessive force, banning chokeholds, and requiring warnings before force is used. Becerra also says his office will help Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department investigate the death of Robert Fuller, a black man found hanging from a tree in Palmdale last week. For the California Report, I'm Marisa Lagos. As important as police are, they're just one part of criminal justice reform. A new study from UC Berkeley finds that California prosecutors disproportionately strike people of color, especially African-Americans, from serving on juries. We asked the person who spearheaded the study, law professor Elizabeth Semmel, to break down the report's findings and their implications for the justice system. Well, we looked at 700 cases decided by the California Courts of Appeal between 2006 and 2018. And of those cases, we found that 480 of them involved prosecutors striking African-American jurors and defendants objecting to those strikes. Uh, Another 191 involved prosecutors striking Latinx jurors and defendants objecting to those strikes. Probably the saddest aspect of this report is that it is unsurprising. So in other words, the findings of this report are consistent with every other study that's looked at the question of who is removed through the exercises of peremptory challenges and who is doing the removing. The answer is that black jurors predominantly are those individuals who are being removed, and it is prosecutors who are exercising those strikes. So tell me, how could that be? Because intentional discrimination in jury selection is clearly against the law. There was a Supreme Court ruling back in 1986 that reaffirmed that. So how could this be happening? Well, it requires an understanding of exactly what is the procedure we use for determining whether or not a challenge is intentionally discriminatory. In 1986, Justice Thurgood Marshall wrote that this procedure in a case called Batson was very likely to fail. And he identified several reasons why it was likely to fail, beginning with the notion that a defendant who challenges a prosecutor's strike must prove intentional discrimination, and describing just how difficult it is to establish discrimination, and for a judge to, in essence, call a prosecutor a racist. Justice Marshall pointed out two other, I think, important points that really are confirmed by this study. Most discrimination is unconscious or the result of implicit bias. And the test we use in California and throughout the United States does absolutely nothing to identify, much less prevent, strikes based on implicit bias. And finally, under this test, certain reasons have been identified as what we call race neutral. What that means is certain reasons that don't scream discrimination on their face, courts have sanctioned their use. Those reasons are a juror's neighborhood, for example, the juror lives in Compton. The fact that a juror is unmarried and has children, and probably most importantly, The juror's demeanor, the juror looked sullen, the juror didn't look me in the eye, and 
a juror's prior negative experience with law enforcement or the fact that someone in the juror's family had such an experience or is incarcerated or has been arrested. Those are reasons that our courts have said are not discriminatory on their face, and yet we know empirically that they are profoundly, consistently associated with stereotypes and discrimination. So if these are the problems, how do we fix them? One of the important findings in the study comes from taking a very detailed look at how prosecutors are trained to exercise peremptory strikes by looking at their training manuals. And what we see is that prosecutors are given lists of court-approved, quote, race-neutral, unquote, reasons. They are instructed to rely on their gut instincts. We know that instincts is another word for implicit bias when we act on autonomously or automatically, we act on implicit bias. When we rely on a list of pre-approved reasons, we aren't thinking or asking whether or not a juror can really be fair. We're applying a set of stereotypes to a, to a juror based on that juror's race or ethnicity. The manuals talk about things like how to avoid being caught using a strike in a discriminatory way, as opposed to how to avoid being discriminatory. All right. Professor Elizabeth Semmel of the UC Berkeley School of Law, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. And that is the California Report for Tuesday, June 16th, a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. Have a good day. Support for the California Report comes from the California Earthquake Authority, urging Californians to prepare to survive and recover from the next damaging earthquake. Learn more at earthquakeauthority.com. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems. And Water Heaters Only, specializing in the repair and replacement of water heaters since 1968. Licensed and insured, open 24 hours a day, every day. Learn more at waterheatersonly.com. Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions. Online or through Star One's mobile app, Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. Hi, I'm Tyler Foggett. Join me and my colleagues as we go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, the political scene accesses the sharpest minds in politics for insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Make sure you're following the political scene, available now wherever you get your podcasts.